And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra at Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury, with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's quite a dramatic tale, isn't it? Nothing like a good shipwreck story to wake you up in the morning. But again, those of us who are not familiar with the geography of the Mediterranean Sea and the, the islands and, and the customs there, we might miss a good bit of what's happening. And so I want to show you visually this morning what's going on. So we're going to get all high tech here. Uh, hopefully this will work. We'll see if uh, we can be high tech enough. Look at that. Wonderful. It's working. Okay. So uh, we, we start out here. Uh, in verse 1, with Paul uh, being entrusted to a centurion named Julius, who is instructed to get Paul from uh, Caesarea, right there, all the way to Rome, which is up there. Sorry, it's a little bit hard to draw with this mouse here. Uh, and that's going to require traveling across all that water in the middle, okay? And that's that's uh, maybe not a big deal for us in the modern day. We have things like GPSs and radio and weather forecasting and so much more, which, which helps reduce the danger associated with sea travel. But back then, you really, really had to know what you were doing and especially uh, how the winds worked if you wanted to survive. And those winds, they change season by season. And even as we saw in today's text, they, they change quite unexpectedly. And so it's not long into our narrative before we see trouble coming. In verse 2, Julius the centurion, along with Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and others, take a ship from Caesarea here, we already circled that guy, up to Sidon. Okay, so that's just a, a, a relatively small trip. But 
Luke tells us that they sailed under the lee of Cyprus from there. So this, this island in the middle here, this is Cyprus. And the, the, the word lee means like a shelter from the wind. So this is noteworthy because normally what a ship would do was sail from Sidon right up directly to Mira. That's how they would have accomplished that journey. That's the shortest route. You don't have to go all the way around Cyprus that way. But Luke tells us that the winds were against them, which means that the winds were kind of blowing from the, the northwest there. And so they're, they're all kind of coming down from the mountains and hills uh, of this landmass here, making it very difficult to make that trip from Sidon to Mira. And so they travel with difficulty up along the side, and then they continue on, barely making it against the wind, and they finally arrive at Mira. Now, Luke... Um, Luke tells us in verse 6 that it's at Mira that, that Julius then finds a new ship which is heading straight for Italy. Okay, so, so he's like, this is fantastic. I'm going to go from Mira and take some kind of trip up here to this boot-looking thing, which is Italy. And that's exactly what he wants. That's gonna, how he's going to fulfill the mission that last chapter King Agrippa had said, you've got to get this guy to Caesar. That's where Caesar is. Go. Okay? And so uh, in... That that all sounds great, but in in verse 7, Luke tells us once again that we sailed slowly and we arrived with difficulty off Snidus. So that's just this little hop right here from Mira to Snidus. That's, again, a short distance, and it happens with difficulty. And then he says, in fact, that the wind did not allow us to go further. So from Snidus, you want to go this way, right? But the wind would not allow them. The wind is, is, is coming down again from the northwest. And so they have to head south. And they head south and arrive at Fair Havens at Crete. Okay, uh, I'm going to stop the screen share for the moment. It's at Fair Havens that we first hear from Paul in this text. And Paul's words here represent this pivotal moment in the message that Luke wants to convey to his readers. This is where where the, the whole message of this chapter revolves around. See, in verse 10, Luke tells us that Paul advised them. Okay, presumably he's referring to the centurion, the pilot, and the owner of the boat. They had a little little conference. What should we do now? The winds are really difficult. We can't go that way. Okay, we're, we, 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 what do we do? So... Uh, Paul says that that if they proceeded further with the current plan, this is not going to end well. Specifically, he says, the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of all our stuff, but of our lives. But despite this firm warning, Luke tells us in verse 11 that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul says. Okay. Now, if you're like me, when you, when you first read that, when you first heard that, you kind of say to yourself, well, was that really a bad decision? <laughs> like, like, here are these guys whose job it is as a living to be the pilot and owner of a boat. They know how to do this. This is their area of expertise. They're sailors. And here's this other guy, a prisoner, no less, who's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. <laughs> okay, who are you supposed to listen to, Julius? Like, think about it this way. If you guys, uh, let's say that you, you had some kind of surgery coming up, and both your doctor and the surgeon who's going to do the surgery says, it's fine. We've done this a hundred times. It's, you have, there's like very little risk. 
let's just do it. You're going to be fine. But then some guy you don't even know kind of shows up, uh, you know, you're walking out of your appointment. This guy shows up and he says, hey, hey, listen, buddy, you do not want to do that. Like, like I perceive that your procedure will be with injury and much loss, not only of vast sums of money, but also of your life. Now, you'd probably be really weirded out by that and be like, what a jerk. <laughs> like, I'm about to go into surgery. But like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really seriously consider his counsel. What does he know about surgery? What does Paul know about sailing? Who would you listen to? And honestly, out of the dozens of times that I've read the book of Acts in my life and, and therefore read chapter 27, the best interpretation I'd ever come away with here was like, well, I guess the point here is that like when... Uh, when you're faced with a difficult choice, you have to listen to the experts or to the holy man. Well, you should listen to the holy man because that pleases God more somehow. Eh. <laughs> like, I suppose there's maybe some wisdom in that, but it, it sure doesn't feel like a satisfying like, takeaway, does it? Like, it even sounds kind of foolish. Like, if, if that, if that guy who came up to you after your, your, your surgery appointment, he's like, it's okay, it's okay, I'm a pastor. You're like, oh, well that changes everything then, doesn't it? No, you, you'd probably still think, well, you're a really weird pastor and I feel bad for your congregation. Like, that, that's, that's kind of what you would say. And so, if that's what Luke is trying to say here, is this text simply intended to be some kind of bludgeon to be used in the epic battle between science and faith? Like, is that, is that the takeaway here? I don't think so. First of all, because I don't believe that science and faith are actually enemies to begin with, at least when you're talking about real science and real faith. But that's another sermon. What I actually find even more compelling here is that Luke himself is not trying to pit science against faith. Rather, I think Luke is going out of his way to show that Paul is actually more scientific, more rational, and more reasonable than anyone else in this narrative. Now, that, that's a bold claim. So let me show you what I mean. Three ways that I think we can see this. First, as we've already seen, Luke has used many words to describe how evidently dangerous this trip has already been, right? Verse 4, the winds were against us. Verse 7, we sailed slowly. Verse 7 again, we arrived with difficulty. Verse 7 again, the wind did not allow us to go further. Verse 8, we coasted along with difficulty. This entire trip thus far has been fighting against the winds, and yet the proposal being considered is whether to launch out into the most dangerous part of the entire journey. Would you have done it? Like, guys, we barely made it this far. Let's keep going. <laughs> Guys, I don't think it takes a Navy SEAL to recognize that it's just a plain bad idea. So Paul's counsel here is in fact more scientific, more rational, and more reasonable than that of the pilot and the owner of the ship. But Luke gives us yet another reason to think that. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul gives this advice. 
Okay, Luke, Luke is speaking here of the fast that took place on the Day of Atonement, which took place in October that year. And Luke brings it up because it was common knowledge back then that as winter approached, the weather becomes increasingly dangerous for sailing. And in fact, the time between mid-September and, and mid-October, I'm sorry, November, was considered an especially dangerous time. And after that, nobody went sailing. You just didn't go out there. That was insane. No one would do it. And so it does not take a a meteorology degree to recognize that continuing on this journey this late in the season is really unwise. And so again, Paul's counsel is shown to be more scientific, more rational, and more reasonable than that of the pilot and the owner of the ship. But Luke gives us still another reason to believe that, just in case you're unconvinced. And it's actually found just a few verses earlier than when we started reading this morning. And so if you were here last week, you will recall that Paul was speaking before Festus and King Agrippa, two of the most powerful men alive apart from Caesar himself. And at one point in the middle of Paul's sermon, Festus interrupts Paul and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. To which Paul replies, I am not out of my mind most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. That's what immediately precedes this account this morning. Do you see it? Standing before these great men, Paul confidently and boldly declares that what he's saying is true and rational, and and it can be clearly known by anyone paying attention, including the king himself. And here's the key. When Paul says that, does King Agrippa refute a single word of what Paul just said? No, he doesn't refute one bit of it. All he asks is, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? (laughs) In other words, he's not arguing with Paul's reasoning. He's arguing with Paul's timing. He's like, well, shouldn't it take longer than this for me to come to faith? He can't find any actual holes in Paul's argument. He just thinks it should take longer. That's his concern. And so the king himself is thereby affirming there, yes, Paul, your words are true. They are rational. They, they should be listened to. And it's with that echoing in the ears of, of Paul's, I'm sorry, Luke's readers, Luke wrote this account here, with that echoing in our ears as today's text begins, our conclusion must be that it does not take royalty to see that Paul's response here, Paul's counsel is more scientific, more rational, and more reasonable than that of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Luke is trying to be so clear on this point as to what was wise. And yet, tragically, in verse 11, we're told that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And so Luke tells us in verse 12 that they decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. Okay, let me pull up the map one more time to show you what's going on here. All right, so we are, uh, whoops, we are here at Fair Havens. That's, that's what we've gotten with much difficulty at that point. They want to go to Phoenix. 
Okay, that's a tiny little journey. It's no bigger than the trip from Sidon to Caesarea, or it's, it's even further than Mira to Snidus. It's this little, you know, it's a relatively short trip, and yet Luke can't help but say, somehow there's a chance, maybe we would make it. In other words, this should have been completely and utterly ridiculous. You should not even think about doing this. But, but what happens in the, in the narrative is that we, we're told there's a south wind gently blowing from down here. Okay? From, from, from the, from the south. And they're like, oh, that's perfect. We can go from Fair Havens to Phoenix with that little wind. See? Told you, Paul. <laughs> what happens? A northeast wind, the northeaster, a tempestuous wind is striking down from the hilltop, uh, from the mountains of Crete, and it slams them coming this way. And so even though they just wanted to make that little trip, it pushes them out into sea. Okay, we're done with our map for the moment. Thank you, technology. I'm going to try putting that here where I won't step on it. Okay, so... That did not work out. They were hit by one of the most terrifying storms imaginable. Okay? This, that word that, that is used there uh, for, for tempestuous is the same word from which we get the word typhoon. Okay, this is a terrifying storm. It's basically the reason that no one sails during these months to begin with. And so they just simply couldn't make it to their next step and out they go. Let me summarize what happens next. First, they pull in the ship's boat because of the storm. Then they ran cables around the ship just to hold it together. Then they take down the mast so they're not driven into some unknown shore. Then they toss the cargo and the tackle overboard. These are acts of desperation, friends. All of their possessions are just tossed out into the sea. And finally, when they had seen neither sun nor stars, it says, and therefore they could not navigate, they didn't have compasses and GPSs and stuff like that. They had no idea where they were, what direction they were heading in. Luke concludes in verse 20 that all hope of their being saved was at last abandoned. If you have an outline, here's your fill-in. When God's messenger is disregarded, the result is that all hope is lost. That's the message that Luke clearly wants to communicate to his readers. And we know that at least one of Luke's readers is Theophilus, a man to whom the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are both dedicated. Luke wrote both of them and, and wrote them to Theophilus. So for Theophilus, he should read this and ask himself, will, will I heed the message that I have gleaned from Luke and Acts through God's messengers? Will I trust in God's messengers who have delivered these accounts to me? That's the question that he would be thinking, hopefully coming to the right conclusion. We've also talked here at Grace Fellowship about how it's at least possible, and I think likely, that Luke and Acts were written as a defense for Paul before Caesar, which is a spoiler, by the way. Luke, I mean, Paul does make it out of this, this whole storm thing today. But he does go and stand before Caesar and, 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 and we, we think that probably Luke wrote these things so that Caesar could read it to know what the facts of this whole thing are. What actually is this all about? So he can make a right judgment. And so if Caesar is in fact reading this, 
right towards the end of the book. Okay, this is the, the this is right up to the point, almost. We've got one more chapter before uh, Paul is standing before Caesar himself. If Caesar's reading this, Luke's message here will be equally clear to him. If you disregard God's messenger, your result will be the same as theirs. All hope will be lost. So, Caesar, will you hear Paul out? Or will you likewise disregard him as the centurion did? And will you lose all hope? And while Caesar or Theophilus or any of Luke's other readers, including us here this morning at Grace Fellowship, we might not find ourselves caught in a typhoon in the Mediterranean. But, but the truths contained in the book of Luke and Acts, both the physical and the spiritual, are nevertheless true. And so let me ask you, will you heed God's messengers? And will you heed the message that they bring? In particular, their primary message in both these books that we've been looking at together is about the person of Jesus Christ, God's son who came into this world to save us from our sin. See, the Bible tells us that, that, that God wonderfully and graciously and lovingly created us, but we rebelled against him. And not just once, but we do it all the time. And we're constantly provoking his anger in that way. That's what the Bible calls sin, our rebellion against him. So spiritually, friends, we are adrift at the, in the open seas with God's just wrath bearing down on us like the most terrible and unrelenting of typhoons. Yet because God is rich in mercy, he sent a rescuer. Yes, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into this world to rescue us, to, to save those who had no hope of being saved. And he did so by giving his life in exchange for ours. And so rather than us receiving God's justified, overwhelming anger, we instead receive his merciful, incomparable goodness that we do not deserve. Christians call that the gospel. And that's the message here that Paul is proclaiming. This is the message that Luke has recorded. So what will you do, Grace Fellowship? Will you heed God's messengers or will you trust in the so-called experts who say, listen to us instead. Because those experts speak forcefully and loudly and confidently, and there will usually be a lot of them. They will cite their experience, their training, their pedigree, their strength, whatever they believe will convince you to join them on their doomed journey. So, for example, experts today will tell us they will, they will lie to us, but they will tell us that the reason you don't feel satisfied in life is because, I'm sorry, you have the wrong gender. That's the problem. And if you just change that, you'll get where you want to go. All the problems will go away. Isn't that a marvelous promise? And experts today will likewise tell you that if, that if you are a woman and you have a new life growing inside of you, then... Uh, if you feel that that new life is going to result in any kind of mental distress or hold back your career or, or otherwise cause you difficulty, well, it's, it's, it's your body that little one is living in. It's your choice. That's what the experts tell us. And so you get to decide whether that little one lives or dies. If you change that, if you change the natural direction of things, you'll get where you want to go. 
Nobody asks the little baby inside you whether or not they'll get where they want to go, but that's besides the point. It's your body. That's what the experts tell us. And the experts will also tell us that our problems in life are ultimately due to an unequal distribution of power. And if everybody, uh, just, if all the people in power simply gave up their power, then we'd all be equal and happy and all conflict would cease. That's how you get where you want to go. So join us as we take down those in power. Listen, my friends, according to God's messengers in the scriptures, none of those things is true. None of those things will get you where you want to go. None of those things is how God set up this world. None of those things contain any hope or any life. None of those things have a future. Rather, if we do not heed God's message through God's messengers, there's only one possible outcome. All hope will at last be abandoned. But what if we do heed them? What if we do choose to listen to God's messengers? Does hope become possible? Let's continue on in our text, picking up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were being driven along the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run, in, run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Now, we may cringe a little at Paul's opening words here in this section, right? He's more or less saying, I told you so. <laughs> See, injury and loss, just like I said. If you'd listened to me, this wouldn't have happened. Who doesn't love a good... I told you so. However, given what we've already talked about in the previous section, I, I don't think that we should actually assume that Paul is saying this in a condescending way. I don't, I don't think Paul is simply being a jerk here who's like, you didn't listen to me and now you got to listen to me. I don't think that's what's happening. Rather, he is drawing everyone's attention to the fact that he had been disregarded and look where it got them. You didn't listen last time. I'm going to speak again now. Will you listen this time? That's, that's the question. Implicitly, Luke is trying to tell us it's going to be more scientific, more rational, and more reasonable to listen to him this time than to disregard him once again. 
And so what Paul does next is to offer hope where there was formerly hopelessness. Verse 23 says that it came, that this message of hope came by way of an angelic visitor who told Paul that he need not fear because God had every intention of having Paul actually get to Rome and stand before Caesar. And more than that, God had graciously granted Paul the lives of everyone on that boat, which presumably Paul had been asking for. Paul then takes this clear message from God and being God's messenger proclaims it to his friends, the crew, the soldiers, and the other prisoners. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. That's strong faith, isn't it? But it's an entirely rational and reasonable faith. Now, Paul does offer one warning. Did you see that? We must run aground on some island. We must run aground on some island. So even though God is graciously rescuing everyone, it would appear that that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for disregarding the messenger earlier on. Regardless, regardless, the message is clear. Where there was hopelessness, salvation is now possible. It's now possible. So will those on board heed God's messenger? That's the question. Well, we see that after two weeks of drifting now on the open sea, ever since the Northeaster struck, they've been out there for two weeks. And in the middle of the night, we're told the sailors suspect they're nearing land. Presumably, they hear the sound of the, the waves crashing on the shore. Very distinctive sound. They're terrified of this, of course, because remember, it's midnight and they have no idea where they are. And so very reasonably, they let down anchors to slow them and then they pray. A wise move. But then it gets really interesting. Watch this. Under the pretense of dropping anchors from the front of the ship as well. Remember, they'd already dropped them off the back. Now now the sailors are like, oh, we're going to go put some off the front too. We really should be slowing down here even more than this. What they're actually trying to do is use the ship's boat. Remember that, that, that that was brought on board before when the storm first hit. Now they're trying to lower it into the sea and they want out. They, they're like, this ship is doomed. We, let's get out of here. And Paul then gives another piece of advice to the centurion and his soldiers. He says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, uh, presumably this was something else the angel had told him, which he hadn't mentioned before because it didn't seem important. Or maybe Luke is just telling us now so we know what's going on. Regardless, this is a critical moment. Because last time Paul had not been heeded and disaster struck. This time, will they heed his message? So... While we're not told what the centurion does, what he thinks, what we do see in the text here is that the soldiers listened to Paul. They cut away the rope securing the boat and off it went. And guys, don't miss how dramatic of an action that is. Because if you're in a ship on the sea at that time and there's no dock to like pull up to, and remember, they don't know where they are. They have no idea what they're going to run into. There's only two ways to get to shore. The first way is you put the anchors down, And then you take your little boat and a little bit at a time, you bring the whole crew to shore. That's option number one, no longer an option. The boat's gone. Option two, the only option they now have is you run the ship ashore. Just like Paul said would happen. So do you see the soldiers here are are saying to themselves, last time Paul said this would happen and it happened just like what he said. This time he says, yeah, guys, the the ship's going to run around the ground on the shore. And they're like, who cares about the boat? The ship is going to go ashore. Let the boat go. We want to be saved. That's what's happening here. 
So here's your fill-in. Because God's messenger is heeded by some, the result is that salvation is possible. That The implication is absolutely clear here, friends. The question for Theophilus, for Caesar, for you and for me, is to answer, which group do you want to be in? Will you be among those who fail to heed God's messenger, resulting in hopelessness? Or will you be among those who heed God's messenger, making salvation available to you and to others? Which group are you in? Which group do you want to be in? And if you are in the group who's making salvation possible, if that's your choice, share that message of salvation. Because I don't need to tell you that when we walk around our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our campus, our family, whatever, there's a lot of hopelessness out there. Perhaps there's some in this room right now. I don't know everybody here. Thanks for coming. I don't know you. I don't know how you're doing today. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. Those around us here, friends, have hope in neither this life nor the life to come. But we as God's messengers, can encourage them to take heart and to speak with confidence that we have faith in God and that it will all work out exactly as we have been told through God's messengers. Like Theophilus, we too can have certainty in all that we've been taught about Jesus, that he forgives our sins, that he blesses us beyond measure, that he weeps with us when he weeps, when we weep, that he knows even the hairs on our heads and that he is coming one day very soon and he will remove all death and crying and mourning and pain. They're incredible promises. Don't keep that to yourself. Tell everyone. Tell the whole ship. Tell the prisoners, the crew, the sailors, the, 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 the soldiers, anybody. Tell them. And marvel as God's Spirit leads men and women alike to cut away their boats and re- instead rely on the rational and reasonable promises of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're almost done. Let's finish up our time by considering the final verses in our text today. Starting at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This 
was now the third speech that Paul gave. And once again, he offered hope and promises that God had made. And this time, notice how wholeheartedly the listeners heed his words. In verse 38, after they had eaten, they tossed out the wheat, the, the wheat likely the, the bulk of the ship's cargo. That's the reason they had sailed from, where they, from, uh, from or Sidon all the way up to where they've gotten so far, or kind of out there. That's the whole reason for the trip. They're, they're probably carrying this wheat to Rome or something like that. And they just tossed it overboard. In other words, no one cared anymore about worldly wealth. They just wanted to be saved. Just like Paul said. Moreover, in verse 40, it says they didn't even bother pulling up the anchors. They just left them in the sea because the ship was forfeit. Just like Paul said. Now, when they got stuck on a reef and the already battered ship was literally falling apart because of the the power of the waves bashing against it, it had barely survived the storm to begin with, and now it's just falling apart, we see that the soldiers are still assuming that they should kill the prisoners, including Paul. And that's because Roman law said that if a soldier who allowed a prisoner to escape, if the soldier allowed a prisoner to escape, then that soldier would receive whatever punishment that prisoner had coming to them. How's that for motivation? And so it was commonplace to kill prisoners rather than risking them getting away. And yet, in steps Julius, the centurion, who had formerly stood by silently as the soldiers had cut away the boat. But here we learn what he thinks of Paul. He wants to save him. Paul is God's messenger. And Julius, the centurion, thinks that both the man and his message are worth preserving. My friends, the implication here would be very clear. Hey, Caesar! (laughs) Hey, Caesar! If you're reading this, recognize that everyone here, including a mighty centurion, thinks that Paul is worth saving and he's worth listening to. So, Caesar, will you heed God's message? Will you listen to God's messenger? Will you preserve his life just like Julius did? Will you give him freedoms just like Julius did? Will you offer salvation to all by heeding God's messenger? But that's not all, Caesar. That's, that's not all Grace Fellowship. Paul is not the only messenger worth heeding. In fact, he's not even the most important one. See, over the past months here at Grace Fellowship, we've been seeing that the main point that Luke is trying to convey through the book of Acts is that God's kingdom grows against all odds into the likeness of the resurrected Christ. And indeed, here in our text, we see Paul standing amongst a bunch of lost, weak, and frightened men. He first encourages them, telling them that not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. This is going to be okay. And then he raises up bread, gives thanks to it, breaks it, and feeds them. Paul, therefore, shines in the likeness of Christ himself, both as he sat around with his trembling disciples at the Last Supper, breaking bread and feeding them, and also of his feeding the 5,000 on a grassy hill some years earlier. Jesus is God's ultimate messenger, and all who heed his words can be saved. So we should expect that Paul, in his role as God's messenger, will tend to look a lot like Jesus. And indeed he does. And as he does so here, the text tells us in verse 36 
that they are all encouraged. All 276 people, including Julius, and indeed, all are brought safely to land. All are saved. And that's your filling. When God's messenger is heeded by all, all are saved. That's why you should heed God's messenger, friends, because that's where salvation is found. Now, that's not always easy to do. It's not. God's messengers don't always tell us what we want to hear. I'm sure Julius would have preferred if the pilot and the owner of the ship had been right rather than Paul, because Paul's news wasn't good news, right? And today we are tempted to believe all kinds of messages that sure do sound like what we want to hear. We want easy solutions to complex problems. We, 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 we don't want to have to endure suffering and difficulty. We don't want to have to change. We want to do what feels right to us. That's the easy stuff. What sounds good to us, what, and what the world tells us, yeah, 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 go with that, go with that feeling, go with that, that perspective, that's great. And sometimes the world is right. It's not like only wisdom is contained in these walls. But guys, the, the, what, what matters is not whether or not the world says it. doesn't matter if Grace Fellowship says it. doesn't matter what you think. What matters is whether it's in accordance with God's message as presented by God's messengers. Only then will it lead to salvation rather than hopelessness. So let me ask you again. Are you heeding God's messengers and the messages that they bring? Do you know the message of salvation through Jesus and of the hope it brings? Let me encourage you guys to steep yourselves in it. Read the scriptures. Look for ways purposefully where God's messengers are calling you to change. Prioritize joining us here on Sunday mornings to worship this amazing God who loves us this much and to, uh, to, and to know more his son Jesus. Get involved in a growth group that meets during the week. They're just starting up, and they are great places to be challenged to hear and apply God's message in a small set of other believers who are trying to do the same. It's worth it, friends. It's worth it. Because those who disregard God's messengers will only find hopelessness. But those who heed that message by God's grace will be saved. Please pray with me. God, this story seems like it's about a shipwreck. It seems like it's about a bunch of traveling and nautical things and geographical things, but what an incredible message of hope is buried right here at the end of the book of Acts. God, we don't want to miss it. We don't know what Theophilus thought. We don't know what Caesar thought, but we get to decide. This morning, God if any of us are choosing actively to disregard the clear message that you are presenting through your messengers, please cause us to repent. Cause us to lay aside all the easy answers and the false promises and to cling to the only place where hope can truly be found and we can be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.